really special when you have two great men back to back who uh, are off the chart, intelligent. When I say that, we're not talking, as you well know from we learn, it's not the worldly knowledge and the worldly wisdom, but really digging down and getting into the deeper things of God. Many years ago, Matt uh, Hartford and I were sitting in the Vienna airport, and we were traveling into uh, Minsk, Belarus in the winter. We're going to be working with some orphanages, working with Yuri Rogov, and uh, uh, working with uh, some medical facilities. And uh, <clears throat> when we were sitting in that Vienna airport talking, we, we got on the, the topic of preparing our people uh, for what was to come. And that was a great conversation because, you know, there wasn't a lot of people. Wait, when was that? Way back in early 2000s, right? 2001. 2001. That was a long time ago, 20 plus years ago. We were talking about what we had saw from the scriptures, what was coming on the earth, and it was starting to really kind of unfold back then. And, of course, it's been ramping up and gaining speed, obviously. We're talking about how to best prepare our people uh, to stand in the crush, to stand as as uh, uh, Josiah said last night, is when we're given the the ultimatum. I mean that's that's twenty some years ago, and we in our hearts have been to build a people that would continue to glorify God and stand till that last day. I have to be honest with you, uh, when Steve Doty allowed me to go with him uh, for the first. Worldwide humanitarian aid trip into Belarus in March of 2000. I got on the airplane and uh, I was just bawling my eyeballs out because I didn't know if I'd get to see my 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 wife and uh, uh, our two sons and the little one that was in the oven. I mean, I'm crazy enough to say yes when I asked Steve to go and he said yes. And my wife's pregnant with Jacob, and I still get on the plane. I was bawling my eyes out, and when I pushed away from the gate, it really hit me. So what if I get thrown into some KGB prison? What am I going to do? I mean, I had to figure out what I was going to do. So I figured I would sing praises to God in English, and hopefully they knew English. And so they would be going, okay, man, that guy's different. And then when they cut my tongue out, I would be tapping one of those great hymns, or knocking on the wall. You know, when they cut my tongue out, then I'd be just doing this. I'd made a decision. That's what I was going to do. And here we are talking about a year later. So what are we going to do when that crush comes to the United States? I know a lot of people don't like to talk about it, but I'd rather know what's coming than to be blindsided. Can I get an amen on that one? Man, you ever been, you ever been cold cocked from the side? Didn't know it was coming? Anybody have that experience? Yeah, when I was a kid, I used to fight a lot. So I figured that you don't want to do that anymore. So I prefer that you know what's coming. The sermons are designed to help you understand that the fear of man will pile drive you into the ground and keep you out of heaven. But the fear of God is that which he has called us to so that we will stand and deliver to our very last breath. And that's what this man is going to help us to understand taking what has been started, and we're going to build on that tonight. So I'm really excited that Matt Hartford's doing this lesson. I know he's going to take it to the next level. I so appreciate you, brother. And every time you stand and deliver, it's always like I'm in awe of, of God working through you. So let's give it up for Matt Hartford. seven my time which is I've been asleep usually for two hours so we'll see how this goes all right I'm a little loopy <laughs> so this should be fun so Matt Parsley I appreciate appreciate him very much that was uh, that was a great message and in a perfect um, tee up I mean he, he ended the message by talking about how the fear of the Lord leads to, to, to the worship and service of our lives. So let's talk about that, because that's exactly 
my my topic this evening. My my technical topic is the fear of the Lord is reverential awe and adoration of the blessed and only sovereign. Um, so I, I wanted to kind of start off something though I, with a with a little bit of a, of a note. Matt Matt kind of got me fired up. With, with a lot of the things, and I was thinking about, oh, I, I want to talk. I want to talk about that. I mean, you, you know, when preachers get up, Bill, you can, you can just preach a whole other sermon on like one point that they make, right, right then and there. So I, I had like eight of those while Matt was Matt was preaching, and um, you know, the I went to college, and um, I racked up a bunch of debt, Bible college, and I'm like, I'm going to be a full time preacher. I was a full-time preacher for a year and a half before I stopped getting paid and went like full self-employed. And so I, I, I had all of this debt, you know, for, for a degree that I wasn't even getting paid for. And, and you know, that's, that's that side. But, I mean, so many people come out of college just burdened with, with thousands upon thousands of dollars worth of debt. And, you know, they're, they're, they're not able to make that kind of money back. But there, there's so many other better ways, and Matt was kind of hitting on that. I wanted to brag on my son Jaden here a little bit. Um, I know I'm going to embarrass him, but you can't tell because he's already red from having red hair. Um, but, but, you know, he, he started working at a, at a big grocery store chain in the southeast called Publix. And, and they're, they're a really great company to work for. They're well-known all around the United States. And, um, you know, he, one of the things I told my kids, and just to kind of reiterate what Matt was talking about, I said, if, if you show up on time, you work hard, and you have a great attitude with great character, you will go exceedingly far. Yeah. He's already at 21 years old. I mean, after only working there about two and a half years. Or is it, he just started third year, right? Yeah, third year. He's already an assistant grocery manager, and it normally takes people 10 to 15 years to get there. Yeah. See? And within, by the time he's 25, He'll either be running a department or be an assistant store manager running, you know, helping to run a store. You know, these, these, if, if you want a good job, something like that, these grocery store managers retire at 55 to 60 years old millionaires from the stock that gets, that gets delivered. And most of them don't have a degree to their name. There's all kinds of ways you can be successful in, is still in this country without racking up six figures of debt. So I, 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 that has nothing to do with my topic. I just, I'm loopy, I told you that. So, you know, that's what I wanted to do. I'm just really proud of this kid because I've seen him work in the store. When, when he doesn't know I'm there, he works sometimes 15, 16, 17 hours without a break. And I, I go there and he's running when he's stopped, when he's doing all of this stuff. And, and Leah's the same way. Joel's the same. I mean, you know, you, you teach your kids good work ethics, you know, good work ethic, a good attitude, great character. In this world, they're going to shine. They're going to stand out. That's what you need. You don't need a whole bunch of letters after your name. You know? That, I mean, that's Russian roulette. With, I mean, they have an agenda to steal your kids' faith. So if you do go... Make sure you're you're staying grounded. I know some some people here in college, you know. I mean, I talked to Taylor. I mean, she's staying grounded. You know, you got to stay grounded. Make sure they have a real faith before they go. That's something we are going to be talking about tonight. Man, fire it up! Let's go. So my topic: reverential awe. Fear of the Lord is reverential awe. I want to start with, with the concept, and Matt kind of teed this up too, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it. First point tonight is, is from terror to reverence. Now, the word, the word fear in Hebrew, yareh, is, is actually a really generic term, just like it is in English. Okay? It can mean, you know, being afraid of something, having terror of something, or actually having reverence of something. It's used in all those different ways. It's a really generic term term like, like our English word is. Now, when you think about people in the world, and, and if you've studied with people and gotten them to the point of, um, oh, my wife knows I'm a sweater, so thank you, honey. I mean, I, I'm going to talk about punishment here, and I can kind of feel the fire <laughs> of, of punishment behind me. It's so 
you know, most people kind of start at that at that terror level. When uh, you've probably seen it, when, when you're studying with somebody and, and you're talking about the fact that they're, they're becoming convicted that they're a sinner, and they understand that they're under the judgment of God, that fear, I, it's palpable sometimes. I, I've actually seen grown men, big dudes, start to shake, physically shake with fear, terror. What, what's the reaction to the, uh, of the world when Jesus Christ returns, when the sky splits and he comes riding back? What's the reaction of the world? Terror. Crying out for the rocks to fall upon them, to hide them from the presence of the one who sits upon the throne, from his face. Because that glory contains information and that information condemns them. Terror. As a matter of fact, what separates us at the coming of our Lord is that we're not the ones who shrink back. If we shrink back, it's already been read. He has no pleasure in us. He stand, we stand because he's able to make us stand. Now, we can't stay in that terror position. You've got to move past that. If, if you stay, and, and I've known Christians that have done this, they live in that fear of punishment. Now, I know Phil's got perfect love casts out fear, and I'm, I, I, I'm going to try not to step on any of your stuff. But you know, I'm just going to hit a couple of quick things here. Um, but that, that topic is so broad that, that there's so many different directions. And, and Phil's appropriate. He'll, he'll, he'll be able to bob and weave and, and uh, adjust. So. <laughs> There, there's, there's, a, there's a progression, though, from terror to reverence. Now, there's another Greek word. Let's, let's turn over to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. Now, there's a word in, in Greek that is used, um, sometimes it's translated uh, fear, a lot of times it's translated God-fearing. Sometimes it's translated worship. Now, we're going to get into the whole worship concept here a bit. And when it comes to, to the concept of worship, we, we know that there, there's a lot of misconceptions out there. and We'll talk about what it is. We'll, we'll lay it out really briefly. But I want to talk more about the application of what true worship actually is than, you know, a little bit more than, than of the mechanics necessarily. This word is, is sebomai. Okay. And the, the Latin uh, equivalent is where they get the word August or Augustus from. You know, uh, reverent, worthy of, uh, worthy of fear, worthy of worship, you know, those types of things. Now, in Matthew chapter 15, 9, we, we, we start to see what this word looks like. <clears throat> uh, let's go back to verse number 7. He says, you hypocrites. So he's talking to the Pharisees and the scribes, right? You hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts far away from me. In vain do they worship me, fear me, sebo my me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. See, so one of the things that we understand is that someone can have a fear of God, but they can have a fear of God in vain. And what is it that's going to determine whether or not they have a, a, a vain fear of God? whether or not they obey or not. If someone says, I have a fear of God, and then doesn't do what that God says, they are lying to themselves. And so many people in this world live in that spot. They live in the place where they supposedly have this fear of God, they have this reverence for, oh, God, I, I, I adore him. I revere him. He is, he is amazing. But I don't do a single thing he says. Well, that's vanity. Nothing. Empty. It's deceptive. We're told lots of times in the scripture to stop deceiving ourselves. 
Why does the scripture tell us not to be deceived or to deceive ourselves? Because that's exactly what human beings have a tendency to do. And it doesn't make any sense. I can't remember who was talking about it. But God sees all. If there's anybody you want to be honest with, it's the one that already knows. Man, it's like having a little kid and, and you saw the kid take what they're not supposed to take. You're like, did you take that? <laughs> I saw you take it. Did you take it? <laughs> you parents know exactly what I'm talking about. That, that's humanity with God. Be honest. Now let's, let's talk about some of the Let's go to some of the, the more positive applications. Acts chapter 13. We're going to flip a little bit here. I find that it helps keep me awake and you awake. Acts chapter 13. Verse 48. So Acts 13 is a great passage. I mean, Paul's doing some great stuff here. You know, the Jews are first excited. Then everybody comes out to see Paul. You know, even the gentlemen, they're like, oh, no can't have this. There's, there's more people here to see this guy than us when we talk about the correct process to wash your hands according to the elders. And so we just can't abide by this. So they get all jealous, right? And then they go ahead and shake the dust off their feet. And, uh, you know, verse 48, it says when the Gentiles, so they're, they're going to go to the Gentiles now. It says when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing, glorifying uh, the word of the Lord. And as many had been appointed to eternal life believed. By the way, I, Calvinists love that, love that verse. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That's a middle voice verb. So it's, it's as many as appointed themselves to eternal life believed. You can make a note of that. That's always fun to bring out. You can ask me about it later if you have a question. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and leading men of the city... Uh, and instigated a persecution um, against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Devout? God fear. The Jews incited the God-fearing women of prominence and the leading men of the city. So you can be a God-fearer and do it in vain. You can also be a God-fearer and be deceived and manipulated. We'll get into how to avoid that here in a little bit. Let's go to Acts 16. Verse 14. It says, A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira sold purple fabric. A God-fearing woman was listening. That's there it's translated worshiper in the New American Standard. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So, again, that's not the point of my message, but, the, you know, her heart was open. And, and Calvinists like to say that, that God opened her heart for the very first time. But notice she was a God-fearing woman before the Lord opened her heart. So, according to Calvinism, God would have already had to have opened her heart for her to even be a God-fearing woman to begin with. And she already would have been saved. So there, there, there's a lot of issues with Calvinism, and, and again, that's not the point of, of why, I'm, why I'm talking tonight. But here we, we see a great example of a God-fearing woman, and here she responds positively. She gets immersed into Christ. See? And then in Acts chapter 17, verse 4, it says, And some, were, uh, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks, a number of the leading women. So again, God-fearing even among the Greeks. See, you can find God, and here, here's kind of the point. You can find God-fearing people among all types of people. Doesn't matter their background. As a matter of fact, they, they might be very devout in a completely false religion. They might actually be exceedingly devout as an atheist or a humanist because they've already researched a lot of the other faiths and recognized they're a bunch of garbage and think that atheism or humanism is the most logical approach. And so they hold to it tightly. And in a sense, they're God-fearing. They're fearing whatever it is that they are worshiping. 
My point is, you know, I, I was in sales for, for a lot of time and man, sometimes it's really hard not to prejudge the quality of a lead. Ah, oh, man, they're never going to respond. You know, they're, they're, they're just going to waste my time. Just look at it. You know what I, I learned as a financial advisor? The people who you really want as your clients look like they don't have any money at all. The people that pull up with, with the fancy cars and then the fancy clothes, they usually have a lot of fancy debt to go along with that and can't do anything about it. <laughs> See? So don't prejudge someone whether or not they're going to obey the gospel or not. You don't get to do that. I don't get to do that. I mean, how many of us, I mean, Ananias kind of did it a little bit. You understand why Ananias did it. Hey, Ananias, go, to, go talk to Saul of Tarsus. Um, really? Yep, it's okay. He kills people. <laughs> it's okay. You're good. You're good. Aren't you glad Ananias went? Yeah. I am. Absolutely. See, the passage that Phil's going to be talking about is how perfect love casts out fear. Now, this whole concept of, of sebomite, God-fearing, the, the word for fear in that passage is not sebomite. It's a different, it's different word. It's where we get our phobia from, right? Uh, phobos, or phobos, phobos. This is not the fear that perfect love casts out, the, the sebomite fear. That's the one that abides. That's the one that stays. That reverential awe of God is the one that stays. And we're going to talk about how that has to balance a little bit later. We can't skew all the way to that side. We have to have balance in how we approach God. And that's what leads to, to the true worship and service of our lives. See, when we understand this, it lead, when we understand God, when we understand his character, we understand how amazing and awesome he is, it leads us to want to serve him if we're humble. And that's one of the key missing things that, that a lot of people have and, and that we're going to be getting into here in just a moment. But one thing I just want to address before we get into that, if we claim that we have awe, reverential awe, the, the, the holy fear of God, We need to make sure that that is accurate. I want to talk a second about family and raising the kids. Kids will find out, they will see very quickly if you're for real. As a parent. If you talk about the fear of the Lord, kingdom first, church first, we serve the Lord first, they're going to find out really fast whether or not you mean it. It starts in the home. It starts top down. And parents, you need to be real about it. You need to make sure that you're putting the kingdom actually first. You have to. If you don't, your kids are going to see it. They're going to ban it. If, if you're being watched all the time, not just by your kids, but by your coworkers, by your family, by your friends. They want to see if you're legitimate, if you're real. Look, I, I know we're all in different stages of our Christian lives and we're all working things out. But I, I, there's a guy back home that, that I've been working with for a couple of years. Ex-heroin addict. Violent felon. When I first started studying with him, tough nut to crack. And when you're working with a, a, an ex-drug addict who's a violent felon, you know, when you're talking about real stuff, sometimes, you know, hey, you know, What's going to happen as a result of this conversation? <laughs> this guy now, two and a half years later, every time we study, he's bawling his head off like a little baby. And I love it. He is so tenderhearted, so thankful. 
and, and he doesn't have his life figured out yet. He's, he's still, still trying to figure out some basic things about his character. But let me tell you something. Anybody that's around him for any length of time knows for a fact that he is a changed man and that he loves the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have, and they know he is 100% for real. It comes through. If you're faking it, it comes through. You have to be real. From terror to reverence, you can't stay in that terror, that fear of punishment. And that's one of the things that I love about this guy. He, he's not in that fear of punishment anymore. And you know what? When he finally moved away from that, because he was there for a while, when he finally moved away from that, the growth has been exponential. When he recognized that, and, and, and here's what happened. The day before, two days before Christmas, he, he, he lived in a, in, a, in a travel trailer outside a guy's house. And the guy's house burned down. Two days before Christmas, he, and, and, and this guy felt he lost everything. Everything. And he came to my house the next day. He was just, he had a bad night, as you can imagine. He's getting ready to pack up and just move away. He's like, I can't handle this. He decided to stick it out. And the church rallied around him and blessed this guy. And because of the love that was shown to him, he is 100% on board, rock solid, immovable. And the growth just in the last two months has been exponential. Because he's, he's finally moved past the fear of punishment and has moved to the concept that, talking about God being your dad, my dad is awesome. He's given me a family for the first time in my life that loves me unconditionally. And nothing will change that. So he's being open and raw and real and honest with us because he knows we love him and we're gonna, and his growth has just been incredible. That type of honesty is what God's looking for. That type of humility is what God's looking for. Which brings us to our next point, from compulsion to conviction. Let's talk about this concept of worship. What worship actually is, and I've talked about this, I talked about this last year, I believe. People have a tendency to think that worship is singing. No, it's not. The word for worship in Hebrew and Greek, it's used 100% it's used of the time like this. The, the word means to bow down. And the concept is submission. That's what God's looking for. He's looking for submission. Now, here comes the interactive portion of the message today. I actually want you to take out your cell phones. Pull up whatever search browser you like. <clears throat> if you use Bing, you know, I guess they have like a, an AI that's helping them out. So um, watch out, it'll murder you in your sleep. Um, <laughs> open up whatever search engine you like, and I want you to type in the following three words. The... You might be a slow typer. Um, <laughs> black obelisk, O-B-E-L-I-S-K. And then just type in of, and it should come up the black obelisk of Shalmaneser III. Hmm? Yeah, click on that. What we're looking for is the black obelisk of Shalmaneser III. You got that, sir? I got it. Okay. So click on the images. And what you're going to see is you're going to see a bunch of dudes with pointy hats and really long beards that look like they've been permed. Those are the Assyrians. And one of the guys is Shalmaneser. He was one of the Assyrian kings. And you're going to see a dude kissing the ground, hands and knees, face down on the ground. So if you scroll through the images, you'll see, you'll see one of those images that look like that. The guy hitting the deck is the Israeli king Omri. Omri, Omri, you know, tomato, tomato, potato, potato, whatever. And so what he is doing is he is offering annual tribute 
to Shalmaneser. Every time you see the word translated worship or bow down in scripture, that's the picture I want you to see, but I want you to see it with the different motives. Because let me ask you a question. Do kings have a tendency to have big egos or small egos? Big, big egos, right? Almost as big as presidents and politicians of today. <laughs> Almost. Almost, right? So you have uh, uh, Je uh, Omri, I was about to say Jehu, Omri, bowing down before Shalmaneser. Do you think he's doing that voluntarily because Shalmaneser is just awesome? Or do you think he's doing it and providing a whole bunch of gold and silver and whatever else? Because if he doesn't, <coughs> Shalmaneser is going to come to Samaria, besiege it, cut off people's heads, and fillet them alive. It's the latter. Because that's what the Assyrians did. And in 722, that's what they did. And in 701, that's what they did to the southern kingdom. They were horrible. If you ever researched the, the, the Assyrians, they were brutal in the way that they attacked. And, so, and you can see Jonah gets a, you know, Jonah didn't do what he was supposed to do. But I kind of understand why Jonah had the attitude that he did toward the Assyrians. Again, it wasn't right, but I understand <laughs> because of what they had done possibly to some of his own people. See, at least the nations around him. What Omri is engaging in is what the Greek calls proskuneo and what the Hebrew calls shachah, and it means to bow down or to submit. That's the picture I want you to see. Now notice, he's not standing up with his hands raised singing a praise song. It's not what he's doing. This is what he's doing. And he's doing it because he's forced to do it. Now, if we stay under the fear of the Lord, and it's, it's more of that terrifying fear, we have a tendency to be like Omri. We have a tendency to be bowing down in submission only because we're afraid to do anything else because we're afraid we're going to get punished. A person who's afraid to get punished will never step out in faith. A person who's afraid to get punished will never move forward. They'll never show initiative. They'll never take great risks. They'll be like the guy who, who gets the talent, sticks it in his pocket, and gives it back to the master at the end because he was afraid. He won't engage in business. He won't make a profit. And God's really interested in profit. Let's flip over to, to Philippians chapter 2. Let's go to verse 8. This is, well, that's good verse 5. I like context. Philippians 2, 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he exists in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to, uh, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God how they exalted him, bestowed on him the name which above every name, uh, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess to the, uh, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every single human being that has lived, is living, or ever will live. Every angelic force, whether good or evil, will bow the knee and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone. If you do it now, you're the one falling on the cornerstone and it will break you into pieces. But here's the beautiful thing. Jesus Christ is then going to reform you and remake you into something that's actually usable. If you wait until the end, that's the cornerstone falling upon you and you being scattered like dust. And there's all the king's forces and all the king's men are not going to put you back together. It's not going to happen. Submission, for most people, is going to be forced. 
They're only going to do it when confronted with the glory of God. What is it that moves it from compulsion to conviction? We could probably focus on a lot of things, but the main thing that I want to focus on, two aspects, and one I'm just going to mention, the other one we're going to dive into. One is honesty. That's the one I'm just going to mention. And here's the one I want to dig into. Humility. Humility is the difference between the Matthew 15, in vain do they fear me, because they're not, if they actually feared him, they would do what he said. Why weren't they doing what they said? Because they weren't humble. They were still pride-filled and arrogant. And they thought that they could actually change the word of God to suit their own purposes. A person, though, that has the fear of God, the reverential awe of God, coupled with humility, is a person that God can use. That's a... Go to Exodus chapter 33. So we know this story. Moses is talking to God and Moses is a pretty <coughs> awesome dude. Right? I mean, he, they just got done doing some pretty incredible things. Moses at the head. I mean, passed through the Red Sea. I mean, my goodness, what a, what a, what a trip that must have been, right? And he's talking to God, and, and he says in verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know. Um, you have not let me know whom you will send uh, with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name. And you've also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I found favor in your sight, let me know your ways, that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. So what's Moses asking for? I want to know you. I want to know your ways. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, verse 14, and he said, my presence shall go with you. I will give you rest. So what God said, yes, yes, you, you want to know me? Yes. You want me to go with you? Yes. Most like, I, I like this. Verse 15, and he said to him, if your presence is not quote with us, do not leave us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by you going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are on the face of the earth? Then Lord, the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing for which you have spoken. For you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. So Moses is like, I'm two for two. I've asked God two questions, and I've gotten two affirmative responses. Should I do it? Should I do it? Should I go for the big one? Moses shoots his shot. Verse 18. Then Moses said, I pray you show me your glory. That, that little phrase, I pray you, in the New American Standard, it's a, it's a single Hebrew word, and it's pronounced nah. And it means now. He, he's, at, he's asking, but he's actually kind of telling. Humbly, show me your glory. Shooting a shot. Man, that's impressive. <laughs> no one had ever done that. I mean, we, we read Genesis, right? I mean, did anybody else ever do that? Not like that. Verse 19. He said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I'll be gracious to you. I'll be gracious to show compassion. I'll be able to show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face. For no man can see my face and live. So we, we know the story. We, we know, I mean, God puts him in the cleft of the rock, puts his hand over him, takes it away, shows him the trailing edge of his glory. And as he does it, a little bit later on, this is a little bit different. As he's showing him his glory, God is proclaiming his character to Moses. Right. 
Because the glory of God is not just bright light, folks. The glory of God is his character. So when we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and we're beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we're not just beholding God's light shining back at us, we're beholding his character. And the thing that he's telling us is my character now is your character. We're going to come back to that because that's a really big point. So the question is, well, let's, let's do one more thing. Before I ask the question, let's go back up to verse um, 10. So this is them talking about the procedure. You know, God's glory would come down at the tent of meeting. Moses would go in. The people would go out to the front of their tents, bow down. And then um, this is the point part we want to get to. It says, verse 10, when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and bow down, worship, submit each at the entrance of his tent. Thus the Lord would speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, uh, would not depart from the tent. Now, what would happen when Moses would talk to God face to face? What would happen? His face would shut. Emanate light. Did other people see visions of God in the Old Testament? Yes. Did their face shine? No. Why Moses? Numbers chapter 12. Why Moses? So here we got Miriam and Aaron grumbling about the Cushite woman Moses married. And they ask the question, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? This is Numbers chapter 12, um, verse 2. Has the Lord indeed only spoken through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? Uh, okay. So power struggle, family squabble, right? Now notice what verse 3 says. Now, the man Moses was very, what? Humble. Humble. More than any man who was on the face of the earth. Now, who wrote numbers? <laughs> Moses. <laughs> so Moses is writing. You know, I don't know how the inspiration thing worked. Maybe the Lord's telling him what to write. It's like, okay, yeah, you know, as the Lord, yeah, I remember that God. That was, oh, that was a good one. You want me to write what? <laughs> now, if I write it, they're not going to believe it. Right? We know it's true because it's in there. God inspired Moses to write that Moses was the most humble guy on the face of the earth. And Moses like, oh, God, I can't write that. Come on. <laughs> now, if he would have been like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, it, it wouldn't have been true, right? So look what happens. Verse 4. Suddenly, suddenly, <laughs> the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, you three <laughs> come out of the tent of meeting. Uh-oh. So... Think anybody had any of that terrifying reverential fear going on at that particular point? I mean, people used to drop dead when that stuff happens. Verse 5. Then the Lord came down the pillar of cloud and stood at the door of the tent of meeting, and he had called Aaron and Miriam. When they both come forward, he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, not in dark sayings. When he And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak to my servant Moses, or speak against my servant against Moses? Do you think it's any coincidence that God spoke to Moses differently than anybody else? And he writes how humble he is in the same context? That's why God spoke to Moses the way that he did. 
What does God do to the proud? Resist them, right? What does he do to the humble? Gives grace. When we couple the reverential awe of God with humility, we gain special access to God, specifically through Jesus Christ. If we maintain pride and arrogance, he resists us. Now, humility, people have a, have a weird view of this sometimes. You can, you can talk real quiet and be unassuming and, you know, just be kind of meek looking and be one of the most arrogant, pride-filled people on the face of the earth. It does not matter if you're just gentle and never raise your voice. You can still be exceedingly haughty in mind. Humility is accepting, following, and obeying what God has said without question. And not arguing with Him. People who claim to be Christians argue with God all the time. Even people inside that, that are actually Christians. Look at that at the end. Let's go to Romans chapter 3. We're going to start to wrap up with the last point here. So to sum up the last point, the, or, the, or the, the second point we're on from compulsion to conviction, Romans chapter 3. Um, what is it that leads us to doing this from, from compulsion, being forced to do it, to do it voluntarily? It's going to be humility and honesty. Recognizing, recognizing where God is and then recognizing where you are, where you fit in. People who have a fear of God that are not humble have a tendency to think way more of themselves than they ought, and they actually elevate themselves above God, just like Matthew chapter 15, where, where we read that. Which lets us know that the fear is very shallow. Last point is from asymmetrical to balanced. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is, is that people usually have, if, if you look at their, their, their life as a pendulum and, and their relationship with God as a pendulum, they usually kind of skew to one side or the other. And what I mean by that is you got some folks that skew to the love side a little too much. Then you got other people that kind of skew maybe to the law side or the judgment side or the fear side a little bit too much. Neither one of those is good. Right? I mean, if you skew to the love side without recognizing the holiness of God, you have a tendency to be extremely permissive. And if you skew to the other side, you have a tendency to be kind of law-minded or maybe, you know, the person cowering in fear, which is a law-minded individual, by the way. God wants that to balance. Now, I'm, I'm not a math person. I went to public school <laughs> in Florida. So I was actually too busy um, skipping school surfing when the waves were good, um, which is why I got skin cancer at 19. Um, or, you know, out partying or doing something like that. I wasn't really a math person. So, but from what I remember when I was in math class, so equations need to balance, right? Is that, is that accurate? We got any math people? Equations kind of need to balance, right? Elliot, you sure about that? Okay, yeah, thanks. I trust Elliot. He's, he's a smart guy. Equations need to balance. And Ryan was talking about this um, last night. And I was going to, he, he, he talked about how, how, did, how did God balance, you know, his holiness and his, and his love and his grace. How does he do that? Romans 3 actually tells us, by the way. Verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. 
<coughs> for there's no distinction. For all sin and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because of the forbearance of God. He passed over uh, the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. Pay attention. So that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Now, now Ryan was spot on that it's the free will of man that tips the scale, that, that actually creates uh, or allows us to access the balance of God. But if you think about this for a second, how can God be just, his holiness demanding a price, and being the justifier, the forgiver of an individual? Those two things seem antithetical. They seem out of balance with each other. But what you have is you have God's justice on one side, his forgiveness on the other, and there's an equal sign. There's balance. How can he do that? Verse 25. Jesus, or Christ Jesus, the last word of, of 24, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. That word propitiation is a really interesting word. Now, in Bible college, I grew up that, that that meant that God, that that was a covering and that the sin was still there, but, but God, just imagine these glasses being red. God looks at us through blood-colored glasses and he can't see the sin anymore, even though it's still there. That's garbage. That's the blood of bulls and goats. You know what that word propitiation actually means? Satisfaction. To quote a Marvel movie. Marvel can have some decent theology in it. We have red in our ledger. And it needs to be wiped out. The blood of Christ satisfied the debt. You look at what Jesus Christ went through. If you ever see any of the depictions of what Jesus Christ went through, you read what Eusebius wrote about what happens when a person gets flayed. You read, or, or, or scourged. You read about the prophecies in the Old Testament of what Jesus Christ went through. You know that God just didn't wink and nod and wipe away our sin. It was taken out of the back of Jesus Christ so that you and I could move from the terrifying fear of punishment to the reverential awe of the sustenance of the redemption of Jesus Christ. So that we can humbly prostrate ourselves in spirit and in truth before our almighty God and have every thought held captive to the obedience of Christ. True submission, worship of God can only come when we understand the balance between awe and love. We've we got to move to the point, and, and I think kids are a great example of this. You know, my, my kids, when, when I would get home from work, I couldn't even make it, I couldn't even get my coat off before these little mammals were tied to my legs, prohibiting me from walking. Daddy! Now, I don't want to burst their bubble, but they thought I could do anything. They thought I was awesome. That there was nothing that dad couldn't do. There's a lot of things I couldn't do. But that was their perception. 
they didn't live in fear of me, of punishment. If they did something wrong, and I always knew it. When I came home, normally there were three rugrats behind on my legs. Sometimes there was only two. <laughs> and I knew what had to happen when I got home. So, normally it was Leah. Um, so, I went, she's watching. Love you, sweetie. Um, <laughs> it was hardly ever Joel. Joel was such a good kid. <laughs> we won't talk about the other one. <laughs> so, I mean, it was, it was love, but there was awe there, too. where we got to live, folks. That's where we got to live. I'm going to end with this, and it's, and it's, it's going to be kind of rapid fire, but I kind of want to end with a bang here, and I, I want to tie all this together, okay? Because I, when we kind of been a little bit all over the place a little bit, but I, I, this is going to, this is going to tie it together. Let, let's go to Isaiah 48. Let's look at our God for a second. Let's understand why we should be in awe. Isaiah 48, verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I call. I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. Surely my hand founded the earth, my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand together. Assemble, all of you, and listen. Who among them has declared these things? He's talking about the idols. Who is our God? His hand, not even hands. His hand spread. The heavens. Now, you think about your phone, you know, and, and you can go, doop, doop, and you can make it small and big. <clears throat> I remember the first time I did that, I'm like, that's cool. <laughs> Touchscreen computer. Oh, wow, that's really cool. Look at that. You realize God did that with the universe? <clears throat> and scientists, even, even evolutionary scientists, recognize that God, that, that there was a period after the Big Bang called inflation where everything expanded in, 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 a, in a fraction of a second and then stopped. That was God going, whoop. And then add it with his hand, he could go, whoop, put it right back together. That's your God. That's your heavenly father. Let's go to Psalm 18. This is David. I mean, David is like on cloud nine. He, he, this is right after he got delivered from the hand of Saul. Verse seven. Well, in verse six, he cried to the Lord for help. And then here's God, verse seven. Then the earth shook and quaked and the foundations of the mountains were trembling, were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed, bowed the heavens also and came down. With thick darkness under his feet, he rode upon a cherub and flew, and he sped upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his hiding place, his canopy around him, darkness of waters and thick clouds of the skies from the brightness before him past his thick clouds, hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent, he sent out his arrows and scattered them in lightning flashes in abundance and routed them. You know why God surrounds himself with thick darkness, with the waters? Because Revelation 21 states that when he allows his face, his full glorious face, 
into this creation that earth and heaven flee. They fall apart. They melt. That's the second Peter three melting, the elements melting with intense heat. That heat comes from the glory of God showing his face in creation. Every bond of every atom splitting in the universe instantaneously. You think the scripture speaks to no purpose when it says he upholds all things by the word of his power? This is your God, folks. Ephesians chapter one. Let's bring this home. Ephesians chapter one. Verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Now look at this. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put, look at this, all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That God who spread out the universe with his hand, that God who wraps himself in thick clouds because just the, the, the appearance of his glory in this creation would destroy it is the God who has the surpassing greatness of his power toward us. Toward us. For righteousness. For holiness. For being able to bow down and submit to him and take every thought captive. Tell me that there's a sin that you can't overcome with that kind of power dwelling in you. The way we identify ourselves is absolutely essential. We live in a crazy world where people identify in all kinds of ways, but it's actually given us a great tool. There was an Olympic champion named Bruce Jenner. I grew up with him on my Wheaties boxes. Anybody else grew up with him on their Sunday Wheaties boxes? Bruce decided that he's not Bruce anymore. He started to identify as something else. Let me ask you a question. Did that change in identity have a tangible, drastic, life-changing impact on the way Bruce lives his life? If you haven't seen a picture of Bruce lately, then the answer to that question, I'm not telling you to look it up, is yes. The way people identify has profound changes in their practical day-to-day -day life. How do you identify? Are you just a sinner saved by grace? Are you a wretched man or woman? Think about the thoughts that you think. Think about the way you talk about yourself. Think about your prayers. If we're humble, we will accept the definition that God gives us and live by it. If God gives me a definition that I am an overwhelming conqueror, that I am his righteousness,
that our faith has overcome the world. I'm not stepping on your message either. But we say, I'm damaged. I'm broken. I'm a sinner. I'm wretched. I'm worthless. I'm a loser. I've always been a loser. My whole life I've lost. You might actually feel like that. But I'm here to tell you that if you're in Christ, that's not you anymore. And if you still think that's you, you, you need to engage in some humility. Because that's false humility. Engage in real humility and say, I believe your definition of me. Because let me tell you something. You might look back and see your life as a tragic train wreck. Failure after failure after failure. But I'm telling you that this victory is won by faith. It's won by what you believe. It, it's, I mean, going back to Romans chapter 4, Abraham looked at the deadness of his body, the dryness of Sarah's womb, and he believed in hope against hope he believed that he would be the father of many nations. And guess what he became? Your father, my father, we're all sons of Abraham. Because he had faith, because he didn't believe what his eyes told him and what his history said, he believed what God told him, who he was. He identified as a father of many nations and he became a father of many nations. Is God awesome? Is he the only true and blessed sovereign? Do we have the humility to believe what he says about us? Brethren, this is the only way we're going to have victory and stand with what's coming. This is the only way that we're going to overcome the demons in our lives. I know a lot of you have been overcoming. You believe the definitions. Some of you haven't yet. Forgetting what lies behind. Let's press forward in faith. And I guarantee you something. The faith picture will be your reality.